Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. We've got a jingle, Andrew. Yay, a jingle. I never thought I'd live to see the day. I've got a jingle. We're moving up in the podcast world slowly. Um, well, welcome everyone to episode ten of the Drive Nation podcast. I'm Dan Prosser, um, talking again with Andrew Frankel. I am Andrew Frankel. Hello, Dan. Hope you're well. Um, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, well, this is part two of the Drive Nation Naval Gazing series. Um, a few weeks ago, you and I, Andrew, we spoke. Uh, at length about the art of road testing cars and during that podcast we said that we'd um, talk about car journalism more broadly so not just the specific discipline of assessing a car but the industry how how we both got involved um, how people should uh, look at getting involved nowadays how it's changed over the years all that sort of stuff Um, so I think I think to get us started can you give us a, a sort of pricey of how you you started off in car journalism? Presumably, Andrew, you you wanted to get involved in it because, like me, you were just obsessed with car magazines. Um, I, I was. I was absolutely obsessed with car magazines, literally from my from my earliest memory. But I never thought. I literally. I don't think I ever thought that I was going to be a car journalist because, to me. Uh, and this will give you some kind of insight into the sort of child and teenager I was. Uh, yeah, car journalists were were superstars. They were they 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 were Hollywood A listers. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Set Wright and George Bishop and Steady Barker and Mel Nichols and Steve Cropley. I mean, it, the, these guys that I grew up with. Um, you know, I can remember, and I've told this story in print before. Uh, sitting sitting in a burger bar with my father one day, when a red three hundred eight pulled up outside and properly got out of it and walked into the burger bar, and I basically turned puce. And my father said, "What on earth is the matter?" <laughs> and I sort of started stammering and pointing. And my for my father's suggestion was, "Well, just go and say hello and say that you you know you appreciate what he does." And, and honestly, he he could have. 
asked me to go and ask Barbara Bark out with a date and he would have been less likely to get me to do it. I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I, I could barely look at the man um, because that's what motoring journalists were to me when I was that age. Um, and it, it's a very long and fairly boring story, so I won't, be, I won't start telling it now. But I mean, I just, I, you know, I left school with, um, with no qualifications whatsoever because I was lazy, um, bone idle more like, and uh, I did all sorts of things. Uh, I tried to become a lawyer. I did stuff in the city uh, and failed dismally at all of them. Um, and it was only it was only when uh, a mate of my oldest brother's told him that that Autocar were advertising in a thing called the Media Guardian for a junior road test assistant, and my brother knowing that I was sort of sitting at home watching daytime telly. telly you know, f- spiraling down into the abyss. Um, he rang me up and he said, "You got to go for this." Um, and yeah, so that's so. Yeah, I, I, it was. It was. Fun enough, it was kind of desperation, which made me look at something which I thought I, I, I never deserved, merited, or, or, or would be any good at. Um, and again, to cut a very long story short, um, I, I, I sort of lucked and lied my way into the job um, in 1988, and uh, I've been doing it ever since. So do you um, reflect on how you got that job? I mean, did you have any experience that you could sort of call on in, in the interview, for instance, or were you totally green? No, I was, I was completely green. I'd, I don't think I'd ever written anything um, for publication. I don't think I even wrote anything for a sort of school magazine or anything like that. Um, I mean, I knew because it was my least worst A-level that I was better at English than anything else. Um, <laughs> but, you know, a C is not exactly much to... Oh, you know, after retakes, after retakes, I got a D in English first time around. Um, so a C in English is not uh, exactly anything to shout about. Um, so, yeah, and um, no, I, had, I had no experience at all. Um, what got me the job was autocar phrased the advert badly. Uh, it's just one of those standard things and they just ask people to send in their CVs. Uh, and because I was so late to it, because I never saw the paper, because funnily enough, I wasn't reading The Guardian in 1988, um, I I rang up. The only smart thing I did, I did two smart things. One is I rang up and asked if the job was still available. And they said that it was, but only because they had X number of hundreds of applications and I hadn't started going through them. Um, and the second, and the only truly smart thing I think I ever did in the entire process was say, is there anything I can do to make my application stand out a bit? Uh, that's when they told me they'd only ask for CVs and they said, if you wrote something, that would really help because then at least we could see whether you could write or not. Um, I couldn't even type. I could literally. Um, but what I did have was I had um, another brother um, who was um, already sort of flying high in the property world. And he had he had a wonderful person called a secretary um, who could type. And so I wrote up some stuff about a Renault 5, which is I was knocking about in at the time. Um, and she very kindly typed it up. I sent it in and I got an interview. Um, and that's how I got through the door. So <laughs> do not try that approach today. It will not work. Um, but um, yeah, so that's what saved me. It literally saved me. Um, and yeah, I haven't looked back. That's, uh, that's so interesting to hear you talk about the way you idolised car journalists when you were a kid, because it was exactly the same for me. Yeah, I remember Dickie Meadens and John Barkers and some bloke called Chris Harris, Steve. There's a Frankel bloke as well. I can't remember his first name. Oh, the, sorry. There, 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 there are two of us. There's another Andrew Frankel. And people who are really, really old may even know this other one. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just got to tell this story. Um, <laughs> so the other Andrew Frankel, he was the he was the publisher um, 
with a wonderful bloke called Ian Fraser of Car Magazine back in the day, in the sort of 70s and, F and 80s. And they had a thing called FF Publishing and, and they published Car. Uh, and I knew this bloke because, you know, Car was all I read. I devoured Car Magazine. Car Magazine, um, if, uh, if you don't know, is the magazine that completely changed the face of motoring journalism uh, in the 70s and 80s, with particularly under um, Doug Blaine, Mel Nichols and Steve Cropley uh, as its editors. Um, and anyway, so the, the other Andrew Frankel didn't write anything, he just published it. But when he first saw my name in print, my first byline, he literally rang me up and told me to change my name. <laughs> and you didn't. Uh, finally, well, I mean, I was so completely dumbstruck by this. Um, I was, well, obviously I was working at Autocar, and by that stage, Mel Nichols was uh, Haymarket's, uh, which published Autocar's, its editorial director. Uh, and so I knew, you know, I, I was proud to be able to say I knew Mel Nichols a bit. So I just kind of knocked on his door and said, uh, I've had this slightly strange conversation. And Mel just started laughing. Um, and um, I mean, it's not for me to divide the nature of the relationship between uh, the other Andrew Frankel and, 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 and his, uh, the people who work for him in an editorial. But um, suffice to say, the advice was, don't worry about it. Keep going. Uh, and I did. But anyway, so sorry, Dan. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> well, that's hilarious. Um, well, OK. So I, I absolutely identify with that old thing of idolising car journalists, which is a, a strange thing because, well, we're a strange bunch. Um, but, yeah, so I, I was just going to speak about how I got involved in it because there might be a little, you know, some sort of guidance in there for younger guys who are, or girls who are looking to get involved in car journalism today. Um, I actually didn't go to university. I, I knew... I knew from a very young age, actually, that I wanted to work with cars. And I thought when I was a very young kid that I wanted to be a car designer. Um, sadly, uh, it turned out I had zero artistic talent. So that was never going to happen for me. Um, and then I realised, actually, writing about these things might be quite fun. I loved the car magazines. Um, when I was adolescent, I was sort of Max Power uh, era. You know, I was, uh, it's, it was a much more titillating car magazine than auto car. Um, Titular, excuse the pun, and and and, and I, would, I would later progress onto, you know, Top Gear mag and then Autocar, and I, the moment that I picked up those magazines, I just knew that I wanted wanted to to work for them one day, um, and so I, I I it was a bold move, but I decided that I probably didn't need to go to university to do this. Um, when I was eighteen or nineteen, I won a young rally journalist competition in motorsport news, um, which got me a foot in the door with then Haymarket's motorsport titles. So how, do, I, I, can, can we just rewind that slightly? So how did you, so did you just attend a rally um, and send in a report on that rally sort of on spec? Is that, is that how, 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 how you won that? Well, uh, do you know what? There's actually a little bit more uh, to, the, to my story than, than that. that. So before then, I'd, done, I'd written a couple of pieces for Piston Heads, um, which was in its very early days back then. Um, and they paid me, 12 pence or something to to write some nonsense about whatever I, I, anyway i'd had a couple of pieces published but but but, but, but so I, i'm sorry to keep on pressing the rewind button but, but i think it must be really interesting for people who are thinking about becoming motoring journalists today because you know as i will say doubtless later on in this podcast you know the thing to do is to get published um but, you know, these days, you know, if people just ring up an editor or send in a story, it's, it's quite unlikely to see um, the big wide world. So how did you persuade Piston Heads to publish your stuff? OK, let's re rewind all the way back. So I, when I was, I guess, 16, 17, I just sent endless letters yeah. um, to 
to all the editors yes. of all the car magazines yeah. endlessly. This is the important um, stuff. And yeah, emails as well. And I, I, uh, oh, I, I don't even want to tell this story because it just makes me shudder to this day. But I, I was aware that Chris Harris lived in Bristol. You, I could tell from just reading Autocar magazine. I think he mentioned it quite a lot or he, perhaps he explicitly said that he lived in Bristol. And that's where I grew up. And I knew what car he had at the time because he was writing about it in the magazine. And I saw this car that I recognised, an E36 M3 at Bristol Parkway Station. I saw it in the car park. Um, I lived just around the corner from the, the train station then. Um, and I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to have to... You know, this is long before social media. Nowadays, you just fire off a tweet or something. Yeah. You? But I saw his car in the car park and I, I went home and I printed off a letter and I stuck it on the windscreen. Oh, well done. Um, he... <laughs> for... Years after I became his mate, he he didn't he didn't mention it until we were pissed one drunk excuse me drunk one <laughs> evening, um, and he said, "I remember many years ago I found a letter on my old M3, and I just had to walk away. I couldn't bear to hear him complete the complete the anecdote." Uh, but anyway, but that's bit, what yeah, you've so, got to do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you've got nothing to lose other than your dignity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I lost that several times, but. Yeah, I've, I fired off letters, you know, not just to the big magazines either, but to all the, the sort of single mark ones as well. Um, and anyway, so I, I'd, and it, yeah, so with Piston Heads, I managed to get published a couple of times. Um, and this brings me to the Motorsport News competition, which wanted um, a couple of pieces that you'd written, um, perhaps just, you know, as a mock article or anything that had been published somewhere. And then you had to submit um, uh, an article for the competition specifically. Um, I had a, I still have a mate, um, Adam, who was a very, very talented, promising young rally driver at the time. And I, I wrote, I can't remember what I wrote exactly, but I wrote a piece about him. Um, and that was enough to win me this competition, which was enough to get me a foot in the door with the motorsport titles. Um, and that was my kind of backdoor into the industry because, uh, you know, I was doing motorsport reports um, and that was really, really solid experience now motorsport journalism is a kind of uh you know it's an old and noble profession in its own right so you you have to treat it with respect but i think for me certainly that turned out to be a very effective way of getting into the industry because frankly there aren't so many people who want to go and stand in a freezing welsh rally service park when Absolutely. it's in raining outside um and and so when these titles find someone who's prepared to go and do that and is enthusiastic about it, I think, um, I think they, they'll quite gladly have them on board. And so, anyway, long story short, I'd, I'd been doing a little bit of motorsport reporting um, and that was just enough to get me an interview at a publishing company in Kent called Unity Media um, at the end of 2007, which was launching, relaunching a magazine called Performance Car. Um, uh, I got the job and I was in. Um, so I, I mean, there's, I, you know, I owe so much to so many people, um, fluke, good fortune, you know, happy timing all played a huge part of it, but you know, there's no doubt I, I worked really hard and determinedly to, but that's the to thing, get that's, into that's, this industry. that's the thing you make your own luck, don't you? Um, yeah. and you know, you, 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 what you did is, I mean, people so often say, you know, how do you get into the industry? Um, and you know you can go and do a journalism degree. You can go and do a car journalism degree, and I, and, and I wouldn't suggest for a second that anybody shouldn't do that. Um, but ultimately, 
It's about getting yourself noticed and doing what has to be done, um, whether that is leaving a note on Chris Harris's windscreen or deluging somebody with um, with emails or, you know, the work experience thing. Um, you know, I have seen so many work experience people um, come and say that they really want to be motoring journalists, um, but they're always, you know, sort of a bit late in the office and by, you know, quarter past half past five, you can see they're itching to go. And, you know, they always do what you ask them to, but they're never pro And you just think you've got this opportunity. Let me tell you the story of Andrew Golby. It's possible that Andrew Golby will be listening to this. Um, we used to call him Gold Boy. In fact, I think he still calls himself Gold Boy. Um, he was a bloke who came to Autocar on work experience. Um, and we just gave him the most terrible jobs. We, we were horrible to him, as, as we probably were to most work experienced people. And he was, he was the energizer bunny. You, there was nothing you could do to this bloke, which he wouldn't emerge from with an even bigger smile on his face. Um, you know, we, <laughs> we, we needed a Saab, which unfortunately was in Gothenburg at the time. Um, and so we stuck him in appalling weather on a North Sea ferry for 24 hours. And literally the only driving he did was driving it from the quayside onto the boat. And then he came back again for another 24 hours and, and we collected it from that. And he was just, you know, we used to, there was a, some launch going up in Scotland and there were lots of cars, but we didn't want them in Scotland. We wanted them down south. So we would, we basically relayed him for a week. He'd fly up to wherever it was in Scotland in the morning, drive the car back to his parents lived in Warwickshire, I think, spend the night in Warwickshire, deliver the car to us at seven o'clock in the morning, just in time to go back to the airport to fly back up to Scotland to go and get another one. And he did this day after day after day. And for him, he'd, he'd tell you that he was having a wonderful time. He was being paid to drive cars. Um, and at the end of it, we just realised we can't lose this bloke. Um, he's just too good. So we actually created a job for him. Um, and, you know, and he went on and he went on to be, well, far more senior than me. He ended up, I think, publishing the thing and then disappearing off into the industry. And, you know, he was on his way. So that's what you can do if it means enough to you. And the other thing I would say is if it doesn't mean enough to you, for God's sake, don't do it because it's just not worth it. It has to be your absolute passion. You have to be, frankly, down like you and I were. It has to be, you know, the dream of a lifetime to do it. Yeah, it really does. Um, <clears throat> I, can you remember um, what your starting salary was on Autocar? I'll tell you what mine was at Performance Car. Yeah, but I'm a thousand years older than you. Um, my starting salary at Autocar was £7,500 a year. Wow, I feel quite flush then on my £14,000 a year. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I bet it hasn't gone up much since then. Well, no, that's, the, that's sort of the problem, isn't it? I think that's something to bear in mind. If, you're, if you are looking to get in, involved in the industry and you're starting right at the bottom, perhaps as a, a graduate or you know, in your early 20s, you're not going to get paid much at all. I, I moved from Bristol to Kent for a 14 grand salary. Um, and I, I stayed on that sort of money. It perhaps crept up, but I stayed on that sort of money for five or six years. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the people who are going in now will not be paying. I mean, I, I, I'm not completely familiar with what people, you know, new road testers or office assistants or whatever get paid, but it's, um, you know, it, it, it is, it is not something. And even, you know, even if, if you go on, you rise up through the ranks, maybe you end up editing something. Um, and you go freelance through choice rather than a circumstance. Um, and even if you work really, really hard and you make a decent name for yourself, you're never going to be rich. The only way to get rich out of being a motoring journalist is to have some other skill, you know, and, and, and make it on telly. 
uh, and be a Clarkson uh, or a Mayor or a Hammond. Uh, and then, yes, you'll make money. But, you know, the, the number of us compared to the number of them, I mean, it's, it is vanishingly unlikely that you will ever become a wealthy person being a motoring journalist. And that's another thing you've got to look squarely in the eye. Um, yeah. Because if you, know, if you th- I, I think the problem is, is that the, the disparity between our perceived um, standard of living or quality of life, perhaps, um, and what it actually is, is simply colossal. Because Yes, I mean, there are occasions and they are the occasions that people tend to read about where we, you know, swan off around the world and drive, you know, fast cars in exotic places. And, and I think there's a kind of sort of natural association with it. But I think if, if, if they could, if the people who read those sort of stuff would go and look at, you know, the average accommodation for a 25 year old road tester, um, you know, you would see someone who, who was not living that life at all or anything near it. It's, it's a, it's a really, really weird, um, thing to um to contemplate but it's um yeah it's uh it is what it is i guess that's a, that's, a, that's a very good point there's this weird sort of paradox in car journalism in that you will stay in some of the best hotels in the world you will also stay in some of the most appalling places in the world and it's uh, it depends if if there's a car manufacturer putting you up <clears throat> it'll be a great hotel what's the worst place you've ever stayed well, it was, um, well, yeah, so the, the, if it's the magazine that you're working for paying for the hotel, it'll be terrible, More, you know, generally speaking. Um, there was one up near the Yorkshire Moors, North York Moors, I think, um, and it was just a room above a pub, um, and I was sharing with another person in a tiny room, two single beds, um, with the bathroom door hanging off its hinges um and, and it was it was just terrible couldn't really be sure that the, the sheets were clean um <laughs> and it's you know I, and you're sort of lying in that bed thinking i'm sure two weeks ago i was at the ritz carlton in the middle east somewhere with my own little compound with a private pool and you think what's gone wrong i once had a butler <laughs> <laughs> who was paying for that it was it was i think it was my back it was somewhere in the middle east uh i'm not, not, not trying to know but i had two butlers i had a day <laughs> i had a day and a night butler um <laughs> um at, at this ridiculous place uh i, I needless to say I, I didn't avail myself of the services of either but i i, I was led to understand that, that that they were there to do whatever whatever i required of them i also stayed in a hotel which had a four-car garage um and yeah, but uh, you know, at the same time, I can also remember staying in. One of the things that manufacturers tend to do is, or have done, uh, is is book sort of interesting and different places. If if you ask a motoring journalist what he wants from a hotel room, he will tell you he wants a room that is clean, a room with a comfortable bed and functioning Wi-Fi, so he or she can work. That's it. Full stop. Period. Nothing else matters. Yeah. They put me on one of the hottest days Europe's ever seen in a monastery, um, literally in a monk's cell. This was, I think it was a Peugeot launch. Uh, it, was a quite, it was a long time ago. Um, and the only thing that it had going for it was the fact that it was a twin room. So it had two tiny, tiny single beds. But I can remember, this is slightly disgusting actually, but I can remember lying in one and sweating and sweating and sweating until you know, the, the, I was in such an appalling state. I had to go and have a shower in the middle of the night. But then I could get into the other bed. <laughs> um so yeah um it's sort of yeah they, they kind of missed the point there didn't they i what mean just important? completely it's a working job 
um, and we're there to work and, and everything should be configured. And you know, to work, you need to be able to sleep and you need to be able to function and nothing else matters. Maserati once put me up in um, a hotel in Monaco, uh, the Hermitage. Oh, and, yes. And it had a, the Grand Prix wasn't on, but it had a view um, down onto the, the Grand Prix circuit. Um, and it had a, a rate card on the back of the door. Go on. And I had a quick look at it and I realised, yeah, so that's two months' salary. <laughs> For one it night. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you know, oh, it's just absolutely, well, it's completely unnecessary is what it is, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, I suppose the point of that is that, no, sadly, it will, it will, it's very, very unlikely to make you a wealthy person. But you will quite often get to do things that if you weren't a car journalist, you would have to be a wealthy person to be able to afford yeah, to or, or even if you are a wealthy person, may well not simply not be able to do. You've done things, Dan. I've done things that, you know, um, it's just not available to um, yeah. to anybody, pretty much. Um, and that is one of the inestimable pri- privileges of, of of doing the job, because you know, particularly things like you know, um, being first to stuff. I don't know why it matters, but it does. Um, and you know, getting into a car and thinking that you know I am the first person outside this factory to have driven this thing. Um, yeah. And it's you know it's 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 stuff that you remember. And if, if if you're a certain sort of weird kind of person like I am and, and you are, um, this sort of rubbish matters. Mm. Um, yeah, it yeah. really does. Can you get off the top of your head? Can you pull out one money can't buy experience? I'll, I'll tell you mine while you're thinking. Go on. This was. Back in, I think it was 2015, when the current Audi R8 was new. Um, this was before the media launch. Um, so no one really had driven it. And we were at Le Mans. And an hour before the start of the race, um, I drove a new R8 for a lap around Le Sarth in front of a quarter of a million people. There you go. And it was, you know, just what an incredible thing to get to be able to do. Yeah. Okay. I thought of one. Go on. I guess it would have been five years ago. Um, um, he and I talk about this frequently uh, because we still can't believe it happened. Um, Harris and I went to Vysak. Uh, Vysak is not a public facility. You cannot get, I don't care who you are, you, know, you can't get onto Vysak. It's, it's one of the most secretive closed facilities that there is where, they, where Porsche provided not only the 1987 Le winning 962C, but also Norbert Singer. Uh, and Norbert, who is basically God in Porsche world, who is also one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, and uh, here was the car, and as has happened with other Porsche things that I've done, um, you just get in the car and you drive it. They never say, um, oh, don't use this many reds, or you've only got that many laps, or, you know, we'll keep off the curbs, or, you know, watch this, watch that. They just give you the car. Um, and all I can tell you is that when we got the car, they put it on a brand new set of cut slicks and by the time we finished with it they were cut no more we literally completely done driving this thing as fast as we could around the Visac test track and then we just sat down and spent two hours downloading Norbert I mean yeah you can't I mean you can't buy that can you it's just it's a simply extraordinary experience yeah one of the, the greatest privileges is meeting people that you've idolized um, and in some cases they become your bloody friends yes. i'm thinking yourself and um sir sterling moss yeah yeah no it's uh, it is it is it is absolutely um extraordinary yeah yeah um which it, all that stuff makes it sound like it's a, a wonderful way to make a living um and people should rush towards it but the the, the truth of it is isn't it, andrew that 
the, the thing that you have to want to be more than anything else is a writer. Correct. Absolutely. I mean, there are, it's a, it's a, I've always said to people who've asked, it's a weird kind of skill set because you need, th- there are three non negotiable, um, can I call them talents? Abilities <laughs> that you, that you need. I can't really do anything other than these three things. Um, but you need to be able to drive to the required standard. And that doesn't mean you need to be Lewis, but you need to be good enough to be able to control a car sufficiently near its limit to be able to give your um, your reader a reliable impression of what that car is like in all handling conditions. That is, you can't do the job without that. Um, you then need to be able to communicate. You need to be able, well, yeah, so you need to be able to write. Uh, and again, you don't have to be Hemingway, but you need to be able to write you know, very, very, you know, huge numbers of words. You know, we are, we write an awful lot and you have to be able to write consistently to the required standard. But between those two poles is you have to be able to interpret. You have to be able to understand what the car is saying to you in order to be able to write it down. Um, you know, I was, I was taught, one of the reasons that I left school with no um, exams um worthy of the mention is not only because i was so indolent but also because i was taught by people who knew everything but could communicate nothing um and it's you know you have to you have to have that to, that, that, that too so you have to be able to understand what the car is saying to you and then you have to be able to put it down um but you're absolutely right if that one of those three things was the most important it would be the writing um we're not paid to drive cars we're paid we're paid to write english um and the funny thing is over the years um and some people may be appalled by this i I definitely got into it because it was a way of being paid to drive cars um and i make no apology for that i still love driving as much as i ever did but if forced to give up one or the other i'd give up cars in a heartbeat Mm, wow yeah that's a statement yeah i just i mean to me when it's when it's working well when i feel that by my own limited standards i'm i'm writing okay there's nothing in the world i'd rather be doing it's it is the most wonderful wonderful feeling and 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 i cherish it frankly because it's quite rare um usually um and almost all writers will tell you this even you know very well established famous and well rewarded writers will tell you that it's a struggle um writing is hard it's lonely and it's hard and that's something else you've got to be able to get your head around too but sometimes it is the most wonderful thing in the world yeah i agree okay well i I was going to ask you about this a bit later on but it's it's relevant now and it applies not just to what we do but to any sort of journalism um given how much you love the process of writing and how much energy and effort you put into it how do you feel when a sub-editor or an editor hacks into your copy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly. Um, yeah, this is the sort of thing that, <laughs> that journalists... Uh, well, we don't really get pissed on launches anymore, but we used to because we had the time to. Uh, and then just start re- getting really, really dark and whinging at each other relentlessly about what some bastard back from the office has done for your story. <laughs> um, the truth is that sub-editors are brilliant uh, and sub-editors have dug me out of so many more holes than they have dug for me. Um, and, you know, the amount, particularly, you know, if I've been working for newspapers, the way they fact check things. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Sub editors. And, and, and if people don't know, sub editors are basically the, the safety net between the writer and the printed page. Uh, and they make sure that everything fits, everything's spelt correctly. You haven't said anything stupid. You haven't said anything libelous. Um, 
and yeah and and, and also yeah part of their remit um is you know is, is if they think of a way in which your words could be better expressed they have a certain amount of latitude to um to rewrite your words too although we don't particularly like that but inevitably you know they make mistakes too um i was whinging i think on twitter recently about I'd written somewhere that a car handles like a Mark II Escort, and by the time it appeared on the printed page, it had become a Mark III Escort. Now, anybody who knows, <laughs> knows their Escorts know that Mark II Escorts are the most wonderful things in the world, and Mark III Escorts are, are, are barely worthy of a mention. So, um, yeah, that sort of thing happens. Um, I get very annoyed that, by that, but I also, you know, also there are times when you might try really, really hard with something, with a piece, uh, and to really try to communicate the emotion of a moment and that sort of thing and 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 there's a bit of your heart on the page there uh, and then when you well i say on the page sort of you know in your typewriter or your laptop or whatever um but by the time you see it on the page it's just been sort of diluted it's been watered down because there is some sub-editor who doesn't feel the same way as you thinks you're probably being slightly florid and and just thinks well we'll just dial it back a bit um, and that's quite painful too. It's not as painful as a Mark II Escort becoming a Mark III Escort, but it's, um, it's yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's happened to you, hasn't it? Yeah, it, I think it's probably happened to everyone who's had a byline. Um, it can be frustrating, but uh, it's just part of it, I suppose. And the reality is, um, the, the person commissioning it or sub-editing it has a, <clears throat> a very clear idea of what the title wants, um, and as long as they keep coming back to you for more work you have to let them make the changes that they feel are necessary. Yeah, to a, to a, to a great extent. There was, I used to do a lot of stuff for the Sunday Times, um, and I don't anymore um, for various reasons. But um, they used to... Sometimes I'd write something and it would come out and it'd be, it would be pretty close to what I'd written. Sometimes you'd be reading it and you'd think, well, my name's on it, but that's literally the only thing I recognise in here. Um and you know and you would uh, you know you, you were you sometimes you think well the only reason they've actually asked me to do this is because they you know they wanted a story about the car and they couldn't get access to it any other way and then you've written the story and then they've completely ignored it and rewritten it with your name into the story they wanted it to be um and i found that um now to be fair they wouldn't do things like change a verdict from negative to positive or change star ratings or anything else so i mean essentially you know the the what you the verdict that you intended would be in there somewhere so it wouldn't change the actual meaning of it but um you know everything else could be completely rewritten and and, and as a writer that is I, I really struggled with why they did that um because you know what better way to completely demoralize your writer and to make sure that the next piece uh, he or she writes for you is not as good because they've tried less hard because they think for themselves what's the bloody point if you're just going to change it i might as well just give in notes um mm. <laughs> so but i've only really ever had that with newspaper journalism and in fact although i've written for a few newspaper journal uh, newspapers i've only really had it with the sunday times i've done quite a bit of stuff for the telegraph over the years and they usually you know they might trim it a bit just because it's got to fit a certain space and maybe you've overwritten a little bit or whatever but otherwise you know they're, they're really pretty good at printing what you write oh, just imagine all those creative strops car journalists have had over the years many of them my own <laughs> <laughs> okay well let's uh, let, let's just try and stop grumbling about that stuff and grumble about something else when when do you think the heyday 
of motoring journalism was. And how far are we from that now? That's a really interesting question, Dan, because I've never really thought... OK, it depends how you define the heyday. OK, yeah. if you... If you define it, and any road testers listening to this will understand entirely what I mean by this, by the amount of cocking about we used to do with cars and the amount of really, really stupid stuff um, that we used to do, I would say I was blessed because the heyday for that uh, was probably the early 1990s. Um, I did basically... 90% 90% of the really stupid stuff I'd done in cars I did between 1990 and 1994. Um, and, you know, that was back in the days when people had budget and they could, you know, they could afford to let you try and drive a Ford Mondeo 12,000 miles in a week. Or, you know, if you had, you know, and somebody came out with a new tyre, they'd go and hire a, a test track in the south of France and send you down there with a tyre for a week uh, with, with every other rival tyre and you'd spend you know you spend a week skidding around the Miravel test track with you know oodles of tyres and just having all the fun in the world so I would say that was the heyday but um it's different now I mean yes of course you used to write more words then and there was more t- there was certainly more time you could be much more considered about your verdicts but actually um I think that now is as interesting a time to be a motoring journalist because the industry in which we report is in a state of flux the likes of which we've never seen um and to sit here and you know i don't think we ever spent much time pondering the future of the car because it was always going to be better versions of what we already had now we 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 can't take that for granted anymore um and i think that um it's it may not be as much fun but i think it's even more interesting now um just being a motoring journalist and i think the frustration sometimes that we feel is that we don't get either the space on the page or the time in our heads to really consider these issues and to write about them the way that we would like to because nobody commissions three thousand word stories anymore nobody says oh that's fine you get it to us at the end of next month um that's just not the way the industry works anymore that everything has to be done yesterday um and that um well as you as you will know that brings its frustrations and it brings its constraints and and what it means is that usually speaking what appears on the page isn't as good as it could be if you'd had the time to really consider it and craft it but you know nobody's got time to wait for journalists to you know peer into the middle distance you know and try to get the perfect construction (laughs) yeah exactly you know we can't do that so yeah, yeah, so 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 it's it's a very long answer to a very short question, but um, you know I don't I I, I think it's a th- it's it's an art that moves. I think what has changed are, and perhaps you should talk more about this than me because um, you are much more across this stuff than I am. Um, the skills that are required to be a moderate a modern motoring journalist. I mean, really, you know, if, if when I started, as long as you know you could drive a bit, understood what the car said, and write it down, you were a motoring journalist. Um, these days, particularly with um, with video um, and, and that sort of thing, it's it's a completely different ballgame, isn't it? Well, we're demonstrating it right now, Andrew. Yeah. Um, it, we've we've said ourselves that uh, as a car journalist, first and foremost, you're a writer. But actually, there is there is a bit more to it than that because if you're on staff on a magazine these days, you will more or less be expected to put your face on camera, um, and you might well contribute to a podcast you know you'll be across social media um you'll be it, it's it's become sort of a, a, a multi-discipline uh, vocation hasn't it there's there's a, there are now many many facets to it yeah 
Yeah, now, so do you think that means, because nobody can be good at everything, well, some people can, and that is really annoying, like Harris, um, but because he can present and he can write and he can drive and it's, it's just infuriating. But for most people, do you think that to accommodate the fact that people have to be much more broadly defined, therefore a little less depth is, you can get away with being perhaps not quite as good a writer or maybe not quite as good a presenter in front of a camera than somebody who maybe does it on telly do you think that there's basically an acceptance in the industry that um, to be able to do all these things there is going to be a little bit um, you know people just have to be a bit flexible um, in in their thinking about it I think you're probably right about that yeah I uh, yeah I think you are and I, I think another thing that's changed is that there there was a time where the industry was robust enough perhaps or where it was um you know a sort of grand enough profession that it would attract people who were by any measure exceptionally talented writers yeah you know very talented writers would choose to turn that talent to car journalism yeah and i and i just i just wonder if if that happens now or if it if it if it does happen does it happen to anything like the same extent as it used to I think there are still some really, really talented writers. I mean, one of the things that I've, I've given thanks for, I'm about to contradict myself, um, over the years is I always thought that by the time I got to the age I am now that I'd have been replaced um, because we were certainly, you know, when I was your age, we were replacing the people who were my age. But I think because people have grown up in a different world where there is so much more out there to distract them and to interest them, um, things that we never had, I think there are just fewer really good um car journos coming through because um you know people who might otherwise have gone into the business um may have gone off and done something else which simply didn't exist back then um so there are fewer people coming through but there are some um you know there are some terrific writers um you know young um talented people coming through and you know and 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 i'm frankly i shouldn't be i should feel threatened by it but i'm not i i i i give thanks for it because it means that this wonderful living that we have, um, you know, still has some life left in it. How much, I don't know. But I think it'll be enough to see me out. I hope it'll be enough to see you out. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, but it's, 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 it's an interesting point, isn't it? I wonder as well um, what, what this new digital era and this sort of fragmented media landscape, you know, we've got, never mind just countless editorial websites now, we've also got... Um, individual groups on Facebook and we've got social media accounts and we've got YouTube channels and on top of all of that we've got the whole influencer phenomenon so I feel like the audience the old audience for automotive media content has been fragmented across all these different places and if that's if you think that's the case as well Andrew what has that done to the authority of the old long established print magazines? I, I hope it's increased it um, because I think people understand quality when they read it. I think, you know, I, I don't think you can fake, um, for instance, verdicts that have been arrived at um, with, you know, by people who are who are experienced and, and, and who have had time to thought about it and, and, and have done that sort of thing quite a bit in the past. Um, and I think that, um, you know, if I wanted, uh, to read what a new car was like, uh, you know, I'd just go and read one of the established magazines, um, because I know that although people, 
you know, particularly for freelance like uh, like we are, we, we we tend to write all over the place. But you know, the best writers will still have a presence in those titles. And so, if I wanted to make sure that I was most likely to get a reliable verdict, and we all know the names, we all know the names of the people who we think, yeah, okay, if they say this car is great or a piece of crap or whatever, then that's good enough for me. Um, and you know, and and you know, you what you tend not to find. Um, are people like that who don't have any kind of presence in print, um, present company accepted. Um, but it's, it's yeah, I, I'd still go and revert to the magazines because I think that's where they are. So I, I hope the answer to your question is, is that um, you know, the authority is, is augmented um, by the fracturing um, that, that, that you're talking about. But I don't know, what do you think? It was very interesting to hear you, uh, yeah, sort of describe your position on it. There. I think I think you're right. Um, I I have a sense that the, the sheer size of the audience has diminished. I mean, we know that to be true because circulation figures are are way down. But you know, breadth of reach is not the same as authority. Um, and so, it, I mean, it, it used to be the case that if you wanted to find out about the latest car or read a review about whatever, you would go and buy a magazine. Or maybe you'd wait for a TV show um, to to pop up about it. But, you know, really, those were your options, weren't they? But nowadays, if you've got a keyboard, you can create content about cars. And if you can ultimately work to a point where you've got access to the cars, you, you can build an audience as big or bigger than the ones that you and I have. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that your verdicts are worth reading. Or, or, or they might be worth reading because they might be really interesting pieces of writing. But it doesn't mean that that means um, you know that, that the verdict is is reliable. I mean, as we know, um, briefly <laughs> treading into influencer world, um, <laughs> that you know they will write um, whatever they're paid to write about a car, um, and you know, and you know that's fine as long as people understand that what they're reading is advertorial. Um, then you know, no worries. Um, but please don't tell me that you know that people should go and buy those cars on the basis of that because that's ridiculous. Um, it's not an objective of, of verdict, you know, arrived at by an impartial judge. Um, it's it's a bit of puff that's been written by someone who's paid to write it. And you know, fair play. I you know I don't you know, I don't have the problem with the influences that some people do because I just don't think that. The people who spend that sort of money on those sorts of cars are going to buy um, what they pedal. Um, you know, I think it's it, it's it's a form of entertainment. I guess it's certainly a form of advertising, but you know, it's it's not what we do. I, I only have trouble with it when, for instance, car manufacturers start replacing journalists with influencers on car launches. You know, you and I know that, you know, there are particularly with small exotic car manufacturers. You know, they can't invite a thousand people to drive any given car. Um, and if they've got like, I don't know, 10 places for UK media and three of those go to influencers or four of them go to influencers, well, that's three or four, you know, potentially really good journalists or three or four really good reliable verdicts, which aren't going to get written um, because, you know, they'd rather pay uh, an influence to um, to write something entirely you know, positive and non-contentious. Mm. Yeah, I I, I I agree, and it's it, it, it's one of, it's a scenario, isn't it, really, where us um, sort of more traditional car journalists might have to do something that doesn't come naturally to any of us, but perhaps comes naturally to certain other groups, and and self promote and point out why 
um, an authoritative, reliable, independent verdict uh, it is so vital to, to the consumer. Completely, completely. Um, and, 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 and always will be. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and it's not, just, it's not just the consumer, because I, I don't really regard myself as a consumer journalist. No, uh, I, no I, you're I, right. I, I, yeah. I have a lot of time um, and, and, and admiration for consumer journalists. But, um, you know, whether you're going to buy a car or not, you know, you still want to know what it's like. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, it's, it, we're, we're, we write for the enthusiasts. Yeah, anything, don't we? Yeah, but you don't have to. You know, you don't be sticking your hand in the pocket to want to want to know that you know what you are reading is okay. It's clearly all opinion, so I suppose you shouldn't really couch it in terms of right or wrong. But at least you know you want to know that it is you know independently arrived at an honest assessment of of, of the car as seen on the day. Um, and I think that is always that always has been important and and, and always will be important. I think while we're talking about car journalism as a profession, it's probably helpful to point out that there are lots of different ways to be a car journalist because you can, we've mostly been talking about road testing, which is actually just one part of it. Um, you, you might also be a consumer journalist, as we've, as we've mentioned, or a, a news journalist, or you might be very sort of industry-focused. Um, and then there's the, the, the sort of more creative side of it. Um, you might be best known as a feature writer, um, is there any one so one aspect of car journalism that has sort of appealed to you most? Presumably, it's road testing. Well, well, yes. Um, although you know, it depends. Again, it depends what you mean by road testing. If you if you mean you know proper road testing, that's something. something I mean, I, I I go and assess cars these days. I go and I do what what I call first drives. Um, it's been a long time since I've done what I call a yeah a thorough a road, a test, road yeah. test, which is a as you say a thorough. Um, analytical science-based approach to evaluating a car um, that's what I used to do, spend all my time doing back on the days of an auto car um, I, I, I really like news actually um, I just could never find a way of earning a living at it as, as, as a freelancer you just don't get you know people will say oh well, well yeah that's a really good story let's have 300 words well you and I know what the word rates are I can't survive on 300 words um, so I mean, I would if if I could find a way of making it pay, I'd do more news because I do actually. Although I think that motor shows are totally outdated, outmoded, you know, dinosaurs, um, I do enjoy, particularly one on one, sitting down with you know somebody with something interesting to say, and you know, I, I getting the old deer stalker out and trying to ferret a bit of news out of them. I I, I do find that process quite. Um, it also takes me out of my comfort zone a bit, which I also enjoy. I think that, you know, it's very easy if you're a road tester um, just to spend your life driving cars and writing about them. And I think it's quite easy to get jaded and lazy and blah. So, but I mean, ultimately, yes. Um, what I love doing is driving cars and writing about them. It's, 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 it's all, it's, frankly, it's the only thing I've ever proved to be any good at at all. <laughs> um, okay well let's as we start to wind this down a bit what let's have a think about how it's changing now car journalism and what the future of it might look like i mean it's you and i andrew we're trying ourselves to sort of implement some of the core the fundamentals of car journalism to new platforms we're doing it right now on a podcast and we've got drive nation at drive nation underscore on instagram where we're trying to apply um good robust car journalism to a new social media platform um i mean it, it's it's actually odd isn't it that you and i thought that was a good idea and that it's, we think it's worth doing it is um but you know you can't you can't live in the past i mean much as well i'd certainly love to um you know you, <laughs> you, 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 you can't do that and, and also you know 
although you naturally feel you know, resistance to these things. Um, when you go and do them, of course, like all new things, as long as they are fundamentally worthwhile, they're interesting and, and, you know, and, and it's fun finding out. I mean, you know, unlike you, I'd barely heard of Instagram when you first came to me and said, what do you reckon? Um, and, you know, it's been a really, really interesting process. I mean, for me, you know, I've, you know, most of the stuff I do is for magazines and websites, which involve just writing articles and that sort of thing. But, you know, I've also, you know, I've knocked out a couple of quite big books in the last couple of years. Um, and I do these tiny, tiny, tiny little stories on, on Drive Nation, um, which is probably the most challenging bit of it all, because, you know, as you will know, it's it's far harder to write you know three hundred words and three thousand words, um, and still manage to inform and entertain at the same time. Um, and I find that you know uh, I find that absolutely fascinating, uh, and to be able to be able to write everything from a seventy thousand word book to a three hundred word DN story is you know it's you know variety is the spice of life, isn't it? But looking further forward um i think it's very easy to be sort of you know down in the mouth about it and go you know oh, it ain't what it used to be and you know back in my day this that and the other um but i think they will you know i think people will always love cars i hope so um you know i think the internal combustion engine will still be around for you know some considerable time to come and by the time it goes you know who knows maybe there'll be something else which we can get enthused about or maybe they'll find a way of making electricity interesting i don't know but you know, I, I think that driving cars and reporting on cars, if you're a certain sort of person, and I cannot stress too much that you have to be, it can't be something that you do on a whim or you think, oh, that might be a fun thing to do. It has to be something that you feel deep within you. Then you're, you know, if you can't find something interesting to write about, um, then, then, then you're in, you know, you're in the wrong business. I mean, you and I know that, you know, we have to come up with something to put on Drive Nation every single day. And at the moment when there's no news uh, and there are no cars to drive, you know, you might think, and I might have all thought to myself, oh, this is going to be a bit tricky. We've got like, you know, 8, 10, 12 weeks of nothing. How are we going to fill it? We haven't thought about it. There's just stuff to do, isn't there? If you have the passion and you have the interest, um, you know, you may look at back memory lane or you may have, you know, strong views about something or there may be some little snippet of news that comes out and you can spin something out of that. There will always be a way to write. And I think that's the, it's always been that way. It is that way and it will remain that way. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's, <laughs> I've had so much fun over the last 12 years or something. Um, and I, I think if you if you really stick at it and work hard and make a good name for yourself, there's a decent living to be made. Um, we've already mentioned that you won't be rich, but you're not, not going to be, you know, on the breadline for your 40-year career either. Um, and just the opportunities, the fun you have, the people you meet, God, I actually wouldn't change it for anything. No, not really. I mean, for, I've, I've always said this, you know, I, I, I think <laughs> so often I, I think I sound quite down about people becoming motoring journalists because I know how hard it is these days. Um, uh, but I'm not down about it. Um, I'd only be down about it for someone to someone who I didn't think was was right for it. And I think that most people aren't right for it. I think if you are right for it, it is still the best job in the world. I cannot think of a way within any sense of likelihood or reason that I could have been more happily employed um, and earned a living um, than the one that I, I, I managed to luck and lie my way into all those years ago. And I feel absolutely blessed to have done it and to still be doing it and to hope still to be doing it many years from now. <laughs> uh, well, we all hope you are as well. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's leave it there. Um, 
thank you everyone for for listening um as ever please do remember to uh subscribe to the drive nation podcast wherever you get them leave a leave leave a rating leave uh, some feedback as well um keep listening in um andrew how much car journalism are you doing at the moment well, I'm doing quite a bit, actually. Um, I, um, I obviously have DN to keep me fairly occupied and, you know, and not exclusively, but on the whole, my clients have been really, really good to me. Um, you know, some have said business as usual. Some have said, OK, well, you know, all our staff had to take a 20% pay cut. Would you mind doing the same for the duration of this? Um, so, but people have by and large been very understanding. So, you know, I feel, I feel very lucky, but, um, you know, I obviously haven't got out and driven anything. Although on Tuesday, which is actually the, which is today, isn't it? I know what you're going to say. Go on. Do you? I'm going to go and drive a 911 Turbo S. And, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't think I've been this excited since <laughs> my last child was born. It's, I'm doing it on Thursday. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so, well, I'm going to beat you to it. Um, so, I'm just, um, yeah. So, actually, I, I say Tuesday. It's actually if you're if you if you're listening to this on the day uh, it comes out, then today, hopefully, maybe even while you listen to this, I am wanging around somewhere in a in an i11 Turbo S, and uh, and to me, that's sort of like you know the starting gun on you know hopefully our post COVID lives or starting to get back to that. So, yeah, I'm so excited about that. Me too. Me too. Um, okay. All right. Well, let's let's end it there. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And Andrew, uh, as ever, thank you for your time. Thanks, Dan. It's been a good one. Speak soon. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.